The Productive Woman, Episode 410. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Productive Woman. My name is Laura McClellan and this is a podcast about productivity for busy women. My goal is to help you find the tools and encouragement you need to manage your time, life, stress, and stuff so you can accomplish the things you care about most and make a life that matters. Well, welcome and thank you for joining me. This week, I'm going to share eight books that I recommend, generally related to productivity and making a life that matters, and why I think these particular books are worth reading. You'll find links and additional information in the show notes for this episode at theproductivewoman.com slash 410. So I mentioned last week this idea that many successful people recommend setting aside an hour a day or five hours a week for learning. I do believe lifelong learning is an important component of a meaningfully productive life, whether you're learning about a job-specific skill or just generally broadening your mind and life by learning about other perspectives, it really is important. And one way to do that is by reading. I have been a bookworm since I was a little girl. I love to read. I generally have more than one book at a time that I'm reading, you know, just dipping into it various times. I have to confess over the last, oh, probably the last year or so, I haven't had as much time to read or I haven't spent as much time reading as I typically would. And so recently I have kind of rearranged some things in my daily routine to make more time intentionally for reading. So this week I'm going to share eight books related to topics around the idea of productivity or just generally contributing to making a life that matters. Eight books that I recommend, why I think they're worth reading. For purposes of this list this week, I stuck with nonfiction, but I believe there is great value in reading good fiction. Certainly, you know, the relaxation that comes from just curling up with a good novel, but also exposure to other ways of thinking. The best fiction not only entertains us, but makes us feel and makes us think. And I love those kinds of books. That being said, this week I'm going to be talking specifically about nonfiction books, eight of them that I identified, you know, just kind of looking on my shelf where I keep my favorite books. And um, they're listed here in no particular order other than just as I thought of them or would look at them on the shelf, I would add them to the list. So getting right into it, the first one on the list is shouldn't come as a surprise. It's Getting Things Done by David Allen. It's subtitled The Art of Stress-Free Productivity. And this one is a longtime favorite uh, because in many ways it lays the foundation for my thoughts about an approach to productivity. This is one of the early books that I read about productivity at least in my adult life, and read it many years ago. It's gone through a couple of different um, updates and versions, but it really does um, lay that foundation. Much of my thinking and the structure I use for my own productivity system, as we talked about recently, comes from this book. 
And you may have already read it. You've, if you listen to productivity podcasts other than the productive woman, you've probably heard it mentioned more than once. Uh, but if you haven't read it, I do recommend it very much. The back cover copy says this, Alan's premise is simple. Our productivity is directly proportional to our ability to relax. Only when our minds are clear and our thoughts are organized can we achieve effective results and unleash our creative potential. The back cover goes on to say, from core principles to proven tricks, getting things done will teach you to apply the do it, delegate it, defer it, drop it rule to your inbox and get it empty. Uh, reassess goals and stay focused in changing situations, plan and unstick projects, overcome feelings of confusion, anxiety, and being overwhelmed. And number five on the cover list, and probably my favorite, is it'll teach you to feel fine about what you're not doing. And I think a lot of us can say, yeah, I need that. I need to feel better about the things I'm not yet doing. So I think that says a lot about the value of this book, which describes a bit of the philosophy behind and the purpose of the GTD system, and then goes throughout the book into great detail about the the steps of the system that David Allen developed and the specific actions you can take to implement the GT system into your own life. Uh, there's, it goes into serious depth about all of this stuff. It's, you know, there's a lot there, a lot to take in. And it's the kind of book that I think there's value in rereading from time to time. It's on my list to reread this year. Some of my favorite quotes, a couple of them from the book, uh, are this. So he says, managing commitments well requires the implementation of basic activities and behaviors. First of all, if it's on your mind, your mind isn't clear. Anything you consider unfinished in any way must be captured in a trusted system outside your mind, or what I call a collection tool, that you know you'll come back to regularly and sort through. Second, you must clarify exactly what your commitment is and decide what you have to do, if anything, to make progress toward fulfilling it. Third, once you've decided on all the actions you need to take, you must keep reminders of them organized in a system you review regularly. And I think that paragraph summarizes the the message, if anything, of this book. And as I said, he goes into really uh, specific detail with charts and lists and ideas for exactly how to implement that. But this concept of getting it out of your mind into your trusted system, something we talk about from time to time on this podcast, this is where it originally for me came from. And the second step of clarifying exactly what your commitment is. What is the project you're doing? Exactly what has to be done to call it finished. Uh, This is something we we talk about from time to time. And then third, um, once you've figured all of that out, having those reminders organized in a system that you review regularly. Uh, I, I love how detailed he is in explaining how to do that. And another quote from the book that's, this is kind of later in the book that I really like is this, 
He says, the purpose of this whole method of workflow management is not to let your brain become lax, but rather to enable it to be free to experience more elegant, productive, and creative activity. In order to earn that freedom, however, your brain must engage on some consistent basis with all your commitments and activities. This is, um, he's talking about the review process, and that's where a lot of us sort of slip up, where our system fails us because we don't do that. Uh, but he says why, in explaining why that's so important, he says, you must be assured that you're doing what you need to be doing and that it's okay to be not doing what you're not doing. That facilitates the condition of being present, which is always the optimal state from which to operate. And he finishes this section saying, reviewing your system on a regular basis, reflecting on the contents, and keeping it current and functional are prerequisites for that kind of clarity and stability. So lots of food for thought in this book, lots of very practical, actionable uh, tools and steps to take. And if you haven't read the book or if you haven't read it in a while, I would encourage you to add this one to your list for reading uh, in the next few months. Uh, number two on the list is another one we've talked about before on the podcast, but I couldn't not have this on the list. And that is James Clear's book, Atomic Habits. Uh, subtitled An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones. This is among my top three or four favorite productivity-related books because it creates a very clear, straightforward, and doable path to developing habits on purpose that serve you. And he explains in the book why that matters. This is a book I like so much that I did, you know, I have featured it in our recurring productive reading series which you can find in uh, this particular book in episode 230. The book flap copy of this book says this about the book. James Clear, one of the world's leading experts on habit formation, reveals practical strategies that will teach you exactly how to master the tiny behaviors that lead to remarkable results. If you're having trouble changing your habits, the problem isn't you. The problem is your system. Bad habits repeat themselves not because you don't want to change, but because you have the wrong system. You do not rise to the level of your goals. You fall to the level of your systems. Uh, and he talks about that in some detail and kind of the science behind that. Uh, I found that very uh, motivating, very, very uh, kind of encouraging in a, in a way because as he explained why we struggle so much to sort of overcome the bad habits we've developed. And he gets into how you can make changes um, incrementally. Uh, to me, this book is very, very influential. And I like how very practical the book is. It makes it very clear why habits matter, how small habits can lead to big results, and the steps required to cultivate habits on purpose that actually serve us. So um, a couple of my favorite quotes from the book, he says, changes that seem small and unimportant at first will compound into remarkable results if you're willing to stick with them for years. We all deal with setbacks, but in the long run, the quality of our lives often depends on the quality of our habits. 
He also says, it's, it is so easy to overestimate the importance of one defining moment and underestimate the value of making small improvements on a daily basis. In the book, he talks about, you know, making uh, just a 1% improvement, a tiny uh, improvement and how that is more valuable than trying to do kind of the big grand gesture. He says, too often we convince ourselves that massive success requires massive action, whether it's losing weight, building a business, writing a book, winning a championship, or achieving any other goal. We put pressure on ourselves to make some earth shattering improvement that everyone will talk about. Meanwhile, improving by 1% isn't particularly notable Sometimes it isn't even noticeable, but it can be far more meaningful, especially in the long run. The difference a tiny improvement can make over time is astounding. And so when you're talking about, you know, tiny improvements in your actions, in the habits you're choosing, your daily routine, your effort, whatever, tiny bits of improvement over time accumulate into something pretty remarkable, as he puts it. And I, that, I find that very encouraging. Uh, he's, it, it, to that point, he says, habits are the compound interest of self-improvement. The same way that money multiplies through compound interest, the effects of your habits multiply as you repeat them. And the other thing that I really like, uh, and I come back to when I'm feeling like a failure in, in the moment because I've, you know, dropped the ball in some way or just done something I wish I hadn't, I love what he says here. He says, it doesn't matter how successful or unsuccessful you are right now. What matters is whether your habits are putting you on the path towards success you should be far more concerned with your current trajectory than with your current results. And like I said, I find that very encouraging that if I'm on a path towards improvement, that matters more than maybe my poor outcomes today. So another great book, very much worth, uh, worth reading. Number three on my list today is called Talking to Strangers, What We Should Know About the People We Don't Know. And this is a book by Malcolm Gladwell. I think I may have mentioned this This is not one I've included in the productive reading series necessarily, uh, but it's a really, really good book. It's one that I found on Audible, listened to it, um, you know, during a, a series of long card trips and liked it so much that I went out and bought a hard copy of it so that I could reread it and and mark it up. Um, There are a couple of books like that on this list today. The book flap copy on this book says, something is very wrong, Gladwell argues, with the tools and strategies we use to make sense of people we don't know. And because we don't know how to talk to strangers, we are inviting conflict and misunderstanding in ways that have a profound effect on our lives and our world. That's the sort of thing that really caught my attention. It's no surprise. We, we've talked about it occasionally on the show, and I know you, you recognize um, the conflict we deal with in the world. And so much of it comes from misunderstanding and miscommunication among people that don't know each other very well. We see it played out in spades on social media. Well, this book 
basically explores the difficulties of communication between strangers. And I like it because he uses case studies from commonly known events to explore the beliefs we all have about our own ability to read and communicate with people we don't know. And he says, we all think we're better at it than we actually are. And as the cover flap goes on and describes it, talking to strangers is a classic Gladwellian intellectual adventure, a challenging and controversial excursion through history, psychology, and scandals taken straight from the news. In it, Malcolm Gladwell revisits the deceptions of Bernie Madoff, the trial of Amanda Knox, the suicide of Sylvia Plath, the Jerry Sandusky pedophilia scandal at Penn State University, and the death of Sandra Bland, throwing our understanding of these and other stories into doubt. And I really like his approach in here. Um, The stories in the book are fascinating, and the analysis of of those stories, of the events, and, and he really goes into detail about how they played out and the interactions of the people involved. But the book actually is valuable because it helps us in, in reading about these stories and in the science and, and analysis he brings into it, we become more aware of the fallacies that we might unconsciously believe about our ability to correctly evaluate the behavior and the character of people we don't know. And I think this is something we all need in these contentious times. For instance, as he says, we think we can tell when somebody's lying because, among other things, we believe we can accurately read a person's expression, tone of voice, and behaviors. And the science he discusses in this book proves that none of that is true. Uh, We assume that a person's intent and meaning and, and everything is accurately reflected in the expression on their face, for example, when that's simply not true. Uh, because of cultural differences, because of uh, background differences and context differences. And uh, again, he goes into this in detail in a way that really, really makes you think. And it's just fascinating. Some of the quotes I like from the book that really spoke to me were, he says, we think we can easily see into the hearts of other people based on the flimsiest of clues. We jump at the chance to judge strangers. We would never do that to ourselves, of course. We are nuanced and complex and enigmatic, but the stranger is easy. And then he says, if I can convince you of one thing in this book, let it be this, strangers are not easy. You know, the bottom line is of the book is you think you know, but you don't know. At the end of the book, as he talks about the various um, situations, the stories that he tells in the book, and he's kind of wrapping things up, he, he says this, we have no choice but to talk to strangers, especially in our modern borderless world. We aren't living in villages anymore. Yet at this most necessary of tasks, we are inept. We think we can transform the stranger without cost or sacrifice into the familiar and the known, and we can't. And then he ends, this is like the last sentence of the, of the book, other than a, a little postscript that he puts in. He says this that really makes me think. Because we do not know how to talk to strangers, what do we do when things go awry with strangers? We blame the stranger. And 
to me, that is, that is so profound and is so profoundly true that that's what we do. When there is miscommunication uh, between us and a stranger or things go badly, uh, whether it's someone we meet in person that we don't know that, you know, think the interaction goes poorly or interactions on social media, when things go bad, we tend to blame the stranger. It's their fault. They're doing the wrong thing. They're saying the wrong thing. They're misinterpreting us. Um, lots to think about in this book, and I highly recommend it. It's a great one to listen to on audiobook. Number four on the list is another one I've talked about before, and that is Courtney Carver's wonderful book, Soulful Simplicity, uh, subtitled How Living with Less Can Lead to So Much More. This is a favorite of mine that has had a lot of impact on me and my thinking in re- since I read it. It was the subject of, uh, of one of our recurring productive reading series episodes. That, uh, that was episode 182. And the author herself, Courtney Carver, was my guest on episode 169, not long before the book was released. Just a really um, heartfelt, thoughtful book. The uh, back cover copy says this about it. We are often on a quest for more, be it more things, more experiences, or more professional success. For Carver, this constant striving was forced to a halt when she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Stress was like gasoline on the fire of symptoms, and it became clear that she needed to root out the physical and psychological clutter that were the source of her debt and discontent. In this book, she shows us how to pursue practical minimalism so we can create more with less, more space, more time, and even more love. Carver invites us to look at the big picture, discover what's most important to us, and reclaim lightness and ease by getting rid of excess things. And that's exactly what the book does. What I love about this book is the soulful part, how she... It, she goes beyond the, the the discussions of minimalism that we see in, in lots of books, and I'll talk about another one here in a minute, but she invites us to dig really deeply into our hearts and look at why we accumulate so much and how the physical and psychological clutter affects us and what we really want and how we can get more of it by getting by lightening the load, as we talked about not too long ago. The book really is filled with inspiration, with really thought-provoking insights, and with some very practical suggestions. And I talked about it on on that episode 182, but some of the quotes I particularly like are, for instance, she says, sometimes you have to get rid of the things that don't matter to let the things that do rise to the surface. Uh, She also says, getting rid of everything that doesn't matter allows you to remember who you are. Simplicity doesn't change who you are. It brings you back to who you are. I also love this that she said, we dismiss opportunities every day by telling ourselves we can't do it. We give in to fear. It's good to think things through, but trust yourself to try new things too. I really like that. And one of my favorite reminders that she offers in the book is this one. She says, our days are full of options and opportunity. We don't have to do it all. We can't do it all. 
We are better for it when we don't try to do it all. Really love that. And as I said, uh, check out episode 182 in the Productive Reading Series for a more in-depth discussion of this book and more of the quotes that I love. Or better yet, just read the book because it's, it's really, really good. Number five on my list of books I recommend uh, for making a life that matters is a book by a man named David McRaney. And I may have mentioned this in passing uh, in the past, but uh, it's called You Are Not So Smart. And the subtitle is a long one. Why You Have Too Many Friends on Facebook, Why Your Memory is Mostly Fiction, and 46 Other Ways You're Deluding Yourself. I just love that subtitle. This is another one that I found on Audible, and I listened to it on a long car trip um, this was a year or two ago, and I found it so interesting that I bought a paper copy of the book so that I could reread it and take some notes. I just, it, it's just fascinating and, and very entertaining to read. Uh, the back cover copy of this one says, whether you're deciding which smartphone to purchase or which politician to believe, you think you are a rational being whose every decision is based on cool, detached logic. But here's the truth. You are not so smart. You are just as deluded as the rest of us. You are not so smart reveals that every decision we make, every thought we contemplate, and every emotion we feel comes with a story we tell ourselves to explain them. But often, these stories aren't true. By looking at the lies we habitually tell ourselves, the book answers questions like, why can't I seem to break that bad habit? Why are group projects always a pain? And why are first impressions so hard to overcome? Bringing together popular science and psychology with humor and wit, You Are Not So Smart is a celebration of our irrational, thoroughly human behavior. That's such a, a, a nice summary of the book. This one is just a great combination of entertaining and educational and thought-provoking encouraging the reader to consider honestly the lies she might be telling herself on a regular basis. This is another one that's excellent for listening to as an audiobook. The structure of it is such that each chapter presents a misconception most of us believe, and then the truth that corrects that misconception. So a few of my favorites are in the introduction, the misconception, you are a rational, logical being who sees the world as it really is. The truth, you are as deluded as the rest of us, but that's okay. It keeps you sane. I like that. In the chapter called Priming, the misconception is you know when you are being influenced and how it is affecting your behavior. The truth, you are unaware of the constant nudging you receive from ideas formed in your unconscious mind. Uh, great. Uh, that was such a good chapter. Uh, another really good chapter called Confabulation. Uh, the misconception that he talks about in that chapter is, you know, when you are lying to yourself, the truth, you are often ignorant of your motivations and create fictional narratives to explain your decisions, emotions, and history without realizing it. And then another, the, the last chapter, I'll mention, I mean, every chapter is great. It's very, as I said, entertaining and, and interesting. Uh, but one I'll mention is a chapter called The Public Goods Game. 
The misconception he offers is we could create a system with no regulations where everyone would contribute to the good of society, everyone would benefit, and everyone would be happy. But the truth is, without some form of regulation, slackers and cheaters will crash economic systems because people don't want to feel like suckers. It's a uh, Really a fascinating read and or listen if you want to listen to it as an audiobook. And I also recommend his follow-up book called You Are Now Less Dumb. So he goes from You Are Not So Smart to You Are Now Less Dumb. Um, definitely recommend. Uh, give us gives us a lot of um, food for thought and, and perspective that can help us uh, make a better life for ourselves, a more meaningful life. Number six on my list is called The Power of Meaning, Crafting a Life That Matters. And this was written by Emily Esfani Smith. And this one first caught my attention because of the subtitle, Crafting a Life That Matters. This obviously resonated since so much of what we talk about on this podcast relates to making a life that matters. And so I, I pulled, bought this from Amazon, oh, I want to say a couple of years ago. And really, I have a lot of stuff underlined in it. It was a really good read. Interestingly, when I looked it up on Amazon in, in preparing for this episode, the new version of it they have listed there shows a different subtitle uh, that's, well, it's different, but also meaningful called Finding Fulfillment in a World Obsessed with Happiness. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. The book flap copy on this one says, too many of us believe that the search for meaning is an esoteric pursuit, that you have to travel to a distant monastery or page through dusty volumes to discover life's secrets. The truth is there are untapped sources of meaning all around us right here, right now. This is another book that offers a lot of food for thought. It's one you want to kind of read a, a little more slowly and, and, and process it as you go, because a lot of what she's talking about in the book is the difference between a happy life and a meaningful life. Um, and she, in that context, she's she has chapter titles like The Meaning Crisis, Belonging, Purpose, Transcendence, Growth, and Cultures of Meaning. Um, it, it just was really, it was a book that I would read a chapter a day and then just ponder it the rest of the day. Uh, a couple of the quotes from the book that I particularly liked, she says, according to psychologists, when people say their lives have meaning, it's because three conditions have been satisfied. They evaluate their lives as significant and worthwhile as part of something bigger. They believe their lives make sense and they feel their lives are driven by a sense of purpose. She also says there are sources of meaning all around us, and by tapping into them, we can all lead richer and more satisfying lives and help others do the same. And uh, she also quotes philosopher John Stuart Mill in the book, and this is what he said long, long time ago. Those only are happy who have their minds fixed on some object other than their own happiness, on the happiness of others, on the improvement of mankind, even on some art or pursuit, followed not as a means, but as itself an ideal end. Aiming thus at something else, they find happiness by the way. And um, that's kind of at the heart of the message of this book, that 
you know, our, our culture seems to glorify or focus on the search for happiness. And what she lays out in this book and is kind of what Mill said, happiness is not, shouldn't be an objective. It's a byproduct of meaning, finding meaning in our life. Um, really worth living. I mean, really worth reading. Number seven on my list uh, is another one I've talked about before called The Power of Habit, subtitled Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business. And this is the book by Charles Duhigg. This is another book that I found meaningful enough to feature in our productive reading series back in episode 147. And it is a fascinating look at the science behind habits and their impact. On the back cover, it says, In The Power of Habit, award-winning business reporter Charles Duhigg takes us to the thrilling edge of scientific discoveries that explain why habits exist and how they can be changed, distilling vast amounts of information into engrossing narratives that take us from the boardrooms of Procter & Gamble to the sidelines of the NFL to the front lines of the civil rights movement. Duhigg presents a whole new understanding of human nature and its potential. At its core, the power of habit contains an exhilarating argument. The key to exercising regularly, losing weight, being more productive, and achieving success is understanding how habits work. And so in this book, Duhigg uses case studies to illustrate and explain the principles that research has identified And in so doing, he paints a really fascinating picture of the crucial role of habits in our individual lives and in our corporate lives, and the science of how habits are formed and how they're changed. So a couple of my favorite quotes from the book, habits, scientists say, emerge because the brain is constantly looking for ways to save effort. So this is you know, part of the science he gets into. He goes on to say, left to its own devices, the brain will try to make almost any routine into a habit because habits allow our minds to ramp down more often. And the science shows that, as he says here, this effort-saving instinct of our brain is a huge advantage. An efficient brain requires less room, which makes for smaller heads, which makes childbirth easier and therefore causes fewer infant and mother deaths. And it, if it, so it allows for the survival of the species. Our, our brain uh, gravitating towards habits, creating habits, is an energy-saving survival mechanism. And then he says, an efficient brain also allows us to stop thinking constantly about basic behaviors, such as walking and choosing what to eat, so we can devote mental energy to inventing spears, irrigation systems, and eventually airplanes and video games. So uh, to the science part of this, I found just really interesting. And he tells it in a very uh, engaging and easy to follow way. Another quote from this book that I really liked is this one. He says, habits are powerful, but delicate. They can emerge outside our consciousness or can be deliberately designed. They often occur without our permission, but can be reshaped by fiddling with their parts. They shape our lives far more than we realize. They are so strong, in fact, that they cause our brains to cling to them at the exclusion of all else, including common sense. 
So like I said, he really gets into the why, why habits matter, how they're created, how, how the brain works around them, and then goes into how we can intentionally um, create them and shape them. This is a really good counterpart or, or good book to be read in conjunction with or around the same time as Atomic Habits, because this has more of the kind of scientific background for it. And finally, number eight on the list is another book I might have mentioned in the past, um, but I know it hasn't been the focus of an episode. It's called Cozy Minimalist Home, subtitled More Style, Less Stuff, and the author's name is Mike Willen Smith. This is a really pretty book with lots of inspiration for those who want to make a home that's a comfortable and welcoming haven for yourself and those you care about. And this one, like all the others, is available on Kindle and audiobook, but this is one I'd recommend buying the hardcover copy of because it's just a pretty book. It would make a nice little coffee table book. Uh, and so you can you know, pick it up and, and look through it occasionally. The back cover copy says this, you want a beautiful, simple, cozy, and inviting home without spending more money for more stuff. Stylist and best-selling author Mike Willen Smith guides you step-by-step step in making purposeful design decisions for your home. Starting with what you already have, you'll discover the tools to create a home you're proud of in a way that honors your priorities, budget, and style. Written for the hands-on woman who'd rather move her own furniture than hire a designer, Cozy Minimalist Home offers the guidance you need to finish every room of your house. A cozy minimalist home goes beyond pretty and sets the stage for connection, relationship, and rest. And that's a, a pretty good description of what this book, um, what it does and what it's about. It starts with her explanation kind of about the genesis of the cozy minimalist concept. Um, she shares some of her background and how she kind of got there and the benefits of that approach. And then it goes into very practical ideas for implementing it in a, in a way that suits your own style. And it has lots of really nice photos for inspiration. So a couple of my favorite quotes from this book one that I thought was interesting. Uh, she says, recent scientific research has shown that the level of cortisol, a stress response hormone, rises in women when we are faced with the excess stuff in our homes. It's fascinating. The study reveals that this level doesn't change in men, only in women. Yep, she says, clutter and chaos cause us to feel actual anxiety, stress, and even depression. And, you know, so it's, something to think about as we look around our homes and think, do I have more stuff than I need? In talking about the balance of cozy and minimalism, she says this, I want to live in a world where there is room for plenty, where meaningful collections are admired and loved and passed down through generations, where parties have oodles of hors d'oeuvres and piles of fruit and cheese on the platter, where there is more than enough room for me to find a seat and get comfortable, and where I, in turn, share our abundance with others. But I also love the invitation that a cleared-off surface offers, the freedom not to have to hang something on every wall just because it's blank, the discipline to know when to stop, and the reality that living with less makes my life so much easier. I wanted to remove distractions so I could truly see and ultimately so I could truly live. And I, I like that sort of philosophy and that concept behind it. 
And finally, she encourages us that we can all do this. She says, you don't have to be designery to finally make those design decisions for your home. Creating a home with a style you love isn't a result of some magical creative gene that you weren't born with. It's just a willingness to make informed decisions in the right order with a goal in mind. If you can make decisions, you can create a pretty house that isn't overwhelming. Creating a home you love is simply about deciding what to focus on and then giving yourself permission to stop worrying about the rest. So uh, just it was a a nice read and something I enjoyed flipping through and, and kind of pondering some of the stuff she had to say. And I appreciated the practical kind of design suggestions that she offers. So those are my eight books that I recommend. I thought I'd throw in just just so you know, in case you're interested, a couple of books that I'm reading right now. Uh, one of them is called The 7-Minute Productivity Solution, How to Manage Your Schedule, Overcome Distraction, and Achieve the Results You Want, written by a man named John Brandon. This one was sent to me by the publisher to read and review, and I've just started, so I'll let you know what I think. Uh, I'm also reading a book by a a writer named Erica Pitstick called Taking Roots at Home, Three-in-One Recipes for a Simpler and More Purposeful Life. And again, this was sent to me by the publisher. I've just started it. I flipped through and seen some really intriguing ideas and recipes for making made-from-scratch foods and household products. Not something I've done a ton of. Um, so I'm, I'm intrigued by the book and by the photos in it. So I'll let you know what I think about that one. And finally, uh, just for fun, a novel that I'm reading now, a piece of fiction, is a book called Beauteous by Tamara Lee. This is a continuation of her Age of Honor clean medieval romance series. Uh, Tamara is one of my favorite writers. Uh, I I love her novels because uh, she just creates a world you you feel like you're a part of. Her her novels feature really interesting historical settings and events inhabited by characters that seem real, uh, dealing with very true-to-life struggles and generally happy endings, but not without you know, dealing with some stuff that we still deal with today in our modern world. So it's a fun book. I'll put links to all these in the show notes in case you want to check any of those out. So why did I talk about this this week, this list of books? And I guess I was just thinking for, for those of us living in the Northern Hemisphere, our season is about to be turning from summer to fall and then to winter where instead of outdoor activities, there might be more time to curl up on the couch with a good book. And as part of our, you know, wanting to learn more to, as we make a life that matters, why not? Uh, For those of us who live in the Southern Hemisphere, maybe you're looking for a book to take along to the beach or on the plane or in the car as you head out on a summer trip. So along with the other books that we've discussed in the Productive Reading series, which we'll link to in the show notes, these eight are a few books that I recommend if you're looking for ideas, information, motivation, or inspiration as you make your life that matters. Those are my thoughts, my suggestions, my current recommendations. I'd love to know what you think. What book or books do you recommend for the rest of us to read, uh, nonfiction in particular, that you've read that I didn't list here that, that you think we should all check out that you found really helpful and meaningful? 
Uh, I'd love it if you'd share that. You can do that in the comment section of the show notes for this episode at theproductivewoman.com slash 410. Or you can post a comment or question on the Productive Woman Facebook page. Uh, Again, as we've... Uh, keep talking about if you're a member of the Productive Woman Community Facebook group, that would be a great place to share book recommendations. Uh, And, you know, maybe in the coming months, we will revive our uh, Productive Woman book club discussions. Uh, If you'd rather share your thoughts with me privately, you can do that by emailing your questions, comments, or suggestions to me at feedback at theproductivewoman.com. And I'd love to hear from you. And that, my friends, is it for this episode of The Productive Woman. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. I look forward to talking with you again very soon. So until next time, remember, extend grace to each other and to yourself and go make your life matter.